VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, August the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams is back in the producer's chair. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere. It's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, and we're anticipating a touch-in with a uh, the chef de mission, Gary Martin, with Canada's at the Canada Summer Games. Pardon me. Week number two competition begins today. Good luck to all involved. So we've got lots of great teams, a lot of great athletes, diving, rowing, volleyball. My boy Jack did a lot of work with the volleyball team. Hopefully they have a good tournament. And who's going to be the next Chris Weeks or Thomas Pellier, Nathan Luscombe, Jada Lee, some of the names that have been hopping on the headlines with their achievements at the games and good luck to all involved also want to say good luck to the members of the team nl u18 baseball team through in fort mcmurray for the u18 nationals good luck to them as well that begins i believe today so out of way all right on a sports note sports illustrated was first published by time incorporated today in history 1954 I had a subscription forever when I was young. Still have a copy of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Games edition. Haven't looked through it in a while, but I see it every now and then as I'm digging through some of the old grout down in the basement. Remember looking inside the front cover, especially for some of the names of the photographers, because some of the best pictures we ever saw came from Sports Illustrated photographers, I guess just because of my love of sport. But also the name that continued to jump off the page was Henry Luce at the very top, the founder, an American magazine magnet. So he founded Fortune, Life, Time itself, uh, Sports Illustrated, and then through some of the photographers' names, I can still remember some of them, it was so strange. Neil Leifer and Heinz Klutmeyer and John Zimmerman, right? Bill Frakes, Neil Leifer, did I ever say Neil Leifer? Walter Ios, some of those names that I'll just never forget, but anyway, 1954 saw the first edition of Sports Illustrated hit the stands. Now, I don't know if they would have covered this, but this is just amazing. Last week, we talked about the free deep diving that people do and the extraordinary depths and the amount of time they hold their breath. Wild. Get a load of this one. It was 62 years ago today that Air Force Captain Joe Kittinger, he uh, parachuted from space. He was in a balloon, climbed to almost 103,000 feet and jumped. No, sir. He set four historical records over New Mexico that day. The highest parachute jump, highest balloon ascent, longest free fall, four minutes, and fastest speed by a human without an aircraft. Here's the speed issue. So he fell for four minutes, covered 19 miles in free fall, and reached a maximum speed of 988 kilometers per hour. I don't know if they covered in that at Sports Illustrated, but that is absolutely wild. And also today, you know, we've heard the stories, and it's really getting quite serious regarding avian flu so now it's all the way up on the uh, northeast coast Lums and Musgrave Harbor and the like and we've seen what it means for the devastation of the Cape Mary's ecological reserve so it's mainly amongst the breeding age birds they say they see lots of dead that are nesting amongst the birds and on the water and washing up on shore but the issue is the impact is having on the mates that have now been lost so there's a long-term impact coming regarding avian flu which we don't really currently understand as of yet well even if you listen to uh, dr bill montevecchi he says the same thing so we'll get a touchdown with him coming up soon it looks like the deaths are slowing but it's still really quite serious missing thousands and thousands of birds gannets and murs, turs. 
On that note, it was today, 96 years ago, that the Migratory Bird Treaty was signed between the U.S. and Canada. And it was, here's the quote, being desirous of saving from indiscriminate slaughter and of ensuring the preservation of such migratory birds as are either useful to man or are harmless, have resolved to adopt some uniform system of protection which shall effectively accomplish such object. So cover some 800 species and, of course, enforced in this province to this day. And that was signed 96 years ago today. Okay. Hate to be bringing it up, but we're almost going back to school. And, you know, being prepared is always a good idea. And it doesn't mean that you have to wish away the rest of your summer and or be dreading the first day of school. But here it comes. It's going to be important to get some more information from the provincial government after the Supreme Court ruling that says the schools sitting on Roman Catholic uh, Episcopal Corporation property may indeed be sold. So it was long understood inside the school act and some of the agreements made after the, the denominational system went away that as long as the buildings were being used for educational purposes, they were sort of off limits. Well, maybe not. So we certainly can't see schools bought out from under us, so the province is likely going to have to step in and buy them. I don't imagine, well, maybe, you'd have to be a pretty loathsome developer to buy a school because some of the schools are in some pretty attractive spots in the province, and certainly in the metro region. Boy, oh boy, talk about real estate value. But hopefully they stay away from it. Now, I know we have to raise as much money as they need to compensate the victims of Mount Cash. Everyone understands that. But it would be nice to know where the province is with that particular issue. We'll see if we can get some informa- information before long. Also, one more time, going to ask our faithful listeners to help with the Single Parent Association, VOCM Cares, and all the rest of us to try to block the bus. Go to the Village Mall, make a donation. It ends on the 19th. 700 families plus have already reached out to SPAN, Single Parents Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, to see if they can get some help, just for the basic necessities to go back to school. So... If you can help, we'd all appreciate it. I don't know how much we learn in school about the legitimate, accurate, verifiable history, whether it be colonialism or otherwise, in the province of schools. So the province, you know, there's been a big move across the country uh, when it talks about symbols and monuments and names of buildings and what have you. And they used EngageNL, which is the website platform, where you get an opportunity to voice your opinion on one issue or another. So they received some 215 online submissions, eight written submissions, about whether or not colonial buildings should be renamed. 69% said no, and it will remain colonial building. So, of course, it acted as a legislature for the Dominion of Newfoundland uh, after Confederation of the province from Newfoundland from 1850 to 1959. Okay, $22 million renovation since 2010, and it's going to remain colonial building. Six pardon me, 6% or about 13 people identified as, as indigenous as they replied to this Engage NL survey. So it's going to remain the colonial building. And there's a couple of organizations, of course, disappointed with the outcome. First Voice is a coalition led by indigenous advocacy organization First Light. The, some of the worry as voiced by the province was that they thought it would be a whitewashing of history to remove colonial from the name of that particular building. If you'd like to share your thoughts on it, we can do exactly that here on the show. And I know this is neither here nor there regarding the name of the building, but I could not for the life of me understand cutting down all those big, beautiful trees on that property in an effort to restore to what it looked like 100 years ago. Well, boy, the trees grew, right? And it was a beautiful canopy, those spectacular trees in Bannerman Park, but down they went, which never made sense to me. But I know that's beside the point. 
And speaking of trees, uh, big thanks to the folks from Nova Scotia who are sending some firefighters along to aid in trying to control the fires out of the ones impacting the uh, Beta Spare Highway and, of course, Paradise Lake. The Beta Spare Highway fire covers about 5,200 hectares. The Paradise Lake fire, some 6,600 hectares. One under control, one still out of control, so we welcome the uh, the input and the assistance coming from the province of Nova Scotia. 20 of its wildland firefighters and one agency representative, they're going to join up with the gang out in Gander and get to work, so we really appreciate what they're doing. Now, the state of mercy has been lifted, the air quality warnings have been lifted as well, but still, fire raging in that part of the that part of the province, so we appreciate their help, just like we did when the folks from Quebec and their air support made their way here. And I think PC member Clayton Force is on the right track. You know, I don't know what kind of thought was given to it inside of the PC caucus about not trying to pounce on it to make political hay while the fires are out of control and so many people are worried and the highways closed. But now I think Mr. Forsey's right. He says it's now time to get a firm assessment on the firefighting capacity here in the province. Notably, is number of water bombers. We had five, now we only have four based on mechanical issues. And that happened back in 2018. In 2020, the province talked about uh, the water bomber being out of commission, whether we can fix it or sell it, or it's just going to be shelved. But Mr. Forsey's right, and there's never a downside. And this doesn't come across as trying to be a political opportunist. But it's always important to have a firm understanding of what we got, what we need. If we needed five water bombers at one point, it's hard to believe we don't need five this uh, day and age. The prevalence, the severity of fires and all the other natural related matters, disasters, are going to be ongoing. So the water bombers and that capacity for what we have, how many people we need to train, what we need in the air, what we need on the ground, I think Mr. Forsey's right. And we can take it on if you are so inclined. Okay, I've been scratching my head about this one ever since I read it yesterday morning that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz are going to be in Stephenville to sign an agreement on August 23rd, the provision of hydrogen and alternative energy to Germany. Okay, if the project that's proposed out port to port by World Energy GH2, you know, of course, led by billionaire John Risley, it'll be the first of its kind in Canada. We've got a lot of things going for us in this province when we talk about green hydrogen opportunities. Now, the return to the province still not really well understood, but just we've got the deep sea ports, which are close proximity to the eventual market, and yes, the wind and the water, we get it, and the land. But August 23rd is next week. How can we possibly be prepared to sign a deal? Well, here's the first question. What's the deal? What kind of commitments are we making to a project that hasn't even received final approval? Now, it's easy enough for someone to tell me, well, the fix is in. John Risley's got friends in high places. That project is a go no matter who says what. Maybe. I don't know. But it certainly feels like the cart is well in front of the horse with a deal to be signed on the 23rd of August for a project that has not yet been approved. And remember, we're not talking about little tiny things that the government has gone back and asked for more details on. Here's just a a refresher. So we know there's 164 wind turbines, and there's also the talk of tripling the capacity. So, add that to the pie. They've asked for some very specific things from the proponents, World Energy GH2. 
confirm the final proposed locations of the turbines, worker accommodations, explosive storage facilities, access roads, power lines, substations, and all the different things with proximity and potential impacts uh, nearby receptors and whatnot. Goes on to talk about the overlap with protected areas, private land, mining operations, mineral le- licenses and leases, recreational and traditional land uses, and then further on to the impacts on flora and fauna, bat monitoring program, pre-construction breeding surveys for the nighthawk and short-eared owls, comprehensive study and survey for plants and lichen, and that, 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 that. baseline surveys for moose, caribou, muskrat. Also talking about proposed primary and secondary water resources, hydrological modeling to determine any impact on other local users, and on and on it goes. So it's a pretty long list. Could they possibly satisfy those requests, the more details in an environmental impact statement, have it reviewed, offer opportunity to the general public, especially those in the region, about what this means, where the upsides are, and to get more details by the 23rd of August. Really? So I don't know about the deal they're signing, but it really does seem like there's a big fast track. Look, opportunities are important. Opportunities are important to seize when we have a chance, regardless of what we're talking about. But if we're talking about the first such project in the country, green hydrogen, yes, there's a market, and talk about Germany's reliance on Russian petrochemicals, and different forms of energy, well, okay, great. But where's my money, provincially or federally? What's going on? How can all these assessments be done by the 23rd of August? Short answer is, they can't. So it'd be nice to know a little bit more about what they're actually talking about there. But it's talking about opportunities. We are well positioned in the mining industry. And now with the most recent passing of a climate initiative bill in the United States, you know, moving towards cleaner transportation. Big parts of the bill are talking about domestic supply of all of the, lith- pardon me, the lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, manganese, and others for electric vehicle batteries and other issues. We are sitting on a treasure trove, and nothing comes without uh, environmental impacts. I understand that, and we can take that on if you're so inclined. But when the United States is talking about securing a domestic supply to deal with what is now their number one geopolitical rival in China, who sit on the vast majority of these precious critical minerals, there's opportunities for Canada. The language changed in the bill too. It used to be very unfriendly regarding jobs and opportunities and tax exemptions for Canadian-based businesses. So now it looks like there's going to be big numbers, hundreds of billions of dollars going towards these objectives. And remember, it's not that long ago that a company called North Vault AB signed a deal with Valet and they do business with Tesla, so there are opportunities here. Yes, it's always important to get it right, and yes, it's important to strike while the iron is hot. But this one is a little bit different because we understand what we're doing in the, min- in the mining industry versus the hydrogen proposal, whether it be from John Risley or anybody else. But if you want to take it on, I think we can do exactly that. And the St. John's status of women are asking out loud, where is the pay equity legislation? One of the few provinces in the country that doesn't have one. Now, I will be told very quickly that this has been debunked. People love that word. You know, they say that some of the disparity between what women earn and men earn is based on female-dominated industries, which are no- notoriously low-paid. Okay. Now, we do have one example that's in the courts. There's a former Alcor executive, female, suing the corporation and the government because of pay disparity. She has the level of training, education, experience, and was getting paid less than her counterparts. So that's... That's on the court docket. 
They also go on to point out that places where they've had the legislation over the course of 20 years, they've seen the largest average income increase during the following years. So women being paid more, tightening up the disparity between what women and men earn. Some of it absolutely is attributable to different walks of life and different industries. But my question would be, where's the downside? You know, certainly equal pay for equal experience education and all of the other issues that go to your seniority and your position in a corporation, private or public, but where's the downside to pay equity legislation? I can't see it. Like, I don't understand it. You know, and then an independent monitoring body to ensure that all hands are getting paid the same for the same work and the same experience and the same education. You know the deal. But the sexual status women are looking at it and asking where it might be. Very quickly on the national scene, there's a lot of waves being made in the world of news and journalism with kind of out of the blue, don't ask me, Lisa LaFlamme, who has long been the voice of CTV News and the anchor on their major newscast, gone, blindsided, ousted. Lots of different positions, and I'm not in the room, I don't know what happened, but people talking about, you know, she went gray during the pandemic and hot TV's a uh, visual medium and da, 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 da. Or she stood up to the Bell executives and da, 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 da. But she's gone. And very unceremoniously. Ratings were good. She's a five-time winner at the Canadian Screen Awards for Best News Anchor. She's been at that desk since 2011. She's been winning CTV before they were even CTV in Kitchener-Waterloo uh, when she was the correspondent from her hometown. And she's out the door. But the unceremonious nature really is catching a lot of folks. I guess she had a lot of support, a lot of fans, a lot of supporters, a lot of eyeballs watching her particular newscast. It's a rough industry. I get that. I mean, on a much smaller scale, it happened to me. But get a load of this. Lloyd Robertson retired as the anchor. He was 77. Peter Mansbridge at CBC retired at the age of 69. Lisa LaFlamme, she's 58, had several years left on her contract. I hope she left a rich woman. That's all I can tell you there. The Lloyd Robertson tour, the uh, goodbye tour, took a long time. Peter Mansbridge, I think it was like a year where the country was saying goodbye to Peter Mansbridge. I don't begrudge the two fellows uh, their send-off, but boy, that is really catching a lot of people off guard. Lisa Laflamme, one of the most notable journalists, and yes, news anchors in the country, ousted at CTV. I think that's the right word. All right. Oh, I said I'd read this out, just, you know, very quickly on the whole rethink your drink business. Okay. We call her last week, and it happened to be uh, Eddie Joyce. And so we're talking about the healthy concept of better choices made by adults and children alike. But there were some comments about diabetes. So let's get to it. I just I, I told her I'd read it out so well. Number one, there is no such condition as juvenile diabetes anymore. Diabetes is characterized as type 1, which is, is insulin-dependent, and type 2, insulin-resistant. You can only receive a type 1 diabetes no diagnosis at any age, any age, hence the change in name. You cannot prevent type 1 diabetes. People do not get T1D from eating too much sugar. This misinformation spreading is ignorance and causes more ignorance. Type 1 diabetics commonly have to eat more sugar than they even want to, or their blood sugar will drop to dangerously low levels. So if any type 1 diabetic is about to pass out, there's a 99% chance they need that sugary drink. So in the effort to try to keep the commentary, whether you like the tax on sugary drinks or not, this piece of accurate information is important, and I appreciate the lady for sending it along. And very quickly, I want to say good morning and happy birthday to Greg Batt. Greg is a pharmacist down in the Cove. He's the owner and the pharmacist at Breakwater Pharmacy in Portugal Cove. 
So we want to wish you a happy birthday. And apparently all the poor fellow wants is to be able to listen to Open Line in its entirety in his shop today. That's not a lot to ask, folks. So good morning to the entire staff and crew at Breakwater Pharmacy, and especially you, Greg Bat. Happy birthday, buddy. Right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? We got any calls or what? All right, today in history, we were first introduced to the Monkees. Today, they released their first single. It's the last train to Clarksville. When we come back, you're the first in the queue. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. John, you're on the air. How you doing this morning, Patty? Grand, you? Good. I uh, just called uh, earlier to uh, let you know, well, I think you know anyway, that uh, I know you guys played the monkey song. Uh, was let you know that this is the anniversary of Elvis's uh, death. So it is. You know what? I never thought of that this morning. So August 16th, 1977? Uh, I believe you're correct. He was 42 years of age. Yeah. And the, re- oh, and the reason I know that is that... Uh, my dad, if he was still alive, he died of assisted dying uh, three years ago. But if my dad, my dad's birthday was yesterday, so I tried to celebrate my dad's birthday best I could. And uh, but uh, anyway, he, my dad, if he was alive, he would be 90 tomorrow. Uh, so I, I uh, remember that the day after his Elvis's uh, birthday uh, anniversary date of his death, right? Well, I mean, is he actually dead? What is Elvis actually dead? <laughs> Sorry. You mean the king lives on? <laughs> the king lives on. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I think the you know there's been all sorts of controversy and conspiracy surrounding the Elvis Aaron Presley's death at the age of 42, yeah. found on the bathroom floor in his yeah. Graceland Mansion. I think his girlfriend at the time was named Ginger or someone. Oh, a Ginger Abbott oh. or Ginger Alden, something like that. Someone will tell me. Okay. Uh, found him, of course, unresponsive on the bathroom floor. The coroner said that he had cardiac arrest. He was just about to leave on tour. What a sad turn. Elvis took right being yep. from the the comeback special and the leather and some of the dramatic outfits all the way to a uh, a bloated less than Elvis Presley and bloody Tom Parker making him do all those shows in Vegas and all he wanted to do was tour the world and stuck on the strip so it just became a sad story I love Elvis personally and yeah. so Dave let's uh, queue up some Elvis for the bottom of the program here this morning uh, do you have a favorite Elvis tune or does your father uh, well the, th- the thing is is that uh, I'm a little bit uh, what would what would I say that it might be before Elvis or after Elvis I was on the tail end of Elvis so I wasn't uh, I'll tell you what I wasn't a big Elvis fan but I am now because I I saw the movie Elvis. It was fantastic. Two thirds of the movie is uplifting, unbelievable. The young years of Elvis. Penny, my legs are still shaking. Well, I mean, that's what he wanted. My legs are still shaking, but (laughs) but but at the end, the movie brings you down. It's still uplifting, but I tell you, you will end with tears in your eyes. Unbelievable. It's on my list. I don't go to the movies very often, but we went not long ago, and I chose to see Top Gun Maverick. Oh my God! You must go see Elvis. Yeah, I think I will. And Elvis, Top Gun and Elvis are the two biggest uh, rating movies for the summer, and uh, you got to go to Elvis. I tell you what. I'll meet you and I'll see it for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> John, thanks for reminding me. Uh, that's something you, I would legs, normally remember. But anyway. My legs ahead. are still shaking. When the first five minutes of the movie, when the best part of the movie is when they're going through his young age, when he's when he's young years, when he's hitting all the big hits and he's becoming, you know, starting to become famous or infamous. And it's unbelievable. It's, it's, the movie's unbelievable. I mean, you will be an Elvis fan at the end of it. And you just asked about a favorite song. Let me see. I don't know. Uh, let me see. I'm going with That's All Right, I think. That was one of the first big hits from That's Elvis. Okay. I, I was going to think about uh, the other one, uh, Lonely Street Hotel. Uh, Heartbreak Hotel. 
Yeah, is that too sad for my dad? <laughs> no, Jailhouse Rock, they're all in the same vintage. What do you think? How do you pick one? Yeah, I'll, I'll pick one later in the show, but uh, thanks for reminding me about this thing. particular date. Okay, go a, ahead. Quick. I got one. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to drop your talk over you. I want to let you know that uh, I'm the guy that got an appointment tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock at the, uh, I got the, uh, the, the, the Disney thing, the Vertigo. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, so I got an appointment tomorrow morning for an hour at the Newfoundland Balance and Disney Center. That's the one we put you on to. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, one of your callers called and said that he'd uh, pay for the uh, first session and a follow-up. Yeah. Right, uh, Patty, I, uh, man, I can't believe it. How, you know what? I had nice people giving up on. But there's still people nice out there. Oh, there's good people everywhere, John. We don't, we lose sight of it. Yeah, yeah. Listen, good luck tomorrow, I and thanks for host. the time. I told your manager that uh, he asked me last time that uh, I, I, if I would call with a follow-up. So I'll call you back on, uh, well, the appointment's at night. So time I get home on that. But uh, I'll call you Thursday, let you know if they got me fixed. Well, sure, let us know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks, Patty. I just... Uh, a little bit teary right now because my dad is 90 yesterday. Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, my dad's gone too, so I, I hear you. But he thought of his sister dying. It's, it's very hard to watch. Oh, I can't imagine. Personally. It's a 10-day countdown. It's the worst thing ever. And at the very end, I told him I loved him. And that's the first time I ever told him. And he said he was such a man and such a dad. He goes, we don't need to tell this. We don't need to tell each other that. We know it's that. That's what he said. Is that something else? Yeah, I mean, I it's a different way. That. You know, I tell my boys I love them. I think they're probably worn out here. I couldn't get it out until he was on his deathbed. I got, I got it out, though. And he heard me, right? Well, I'm glad you did. John, I appreciate the time. I yeah. look forward to the follow-up. Good luck yeah. with the appointment. Yeah, listen, Patty, thank you, and I'll listen. Uh, I'll look forward to hearing the Elvis. And by the way, promise mm-hmm. me, no, don't promise me, but go to the movie, man. I'm going to go. Okay. Okay, buddy. Thanks, Patty. All the best. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Will I go take another one for the break, Dave? What do you say? Uh... We will take a little break so we can stay on track, but I'm looking forward to our next guest. Uh, I'll let you throw a few guesses out there. History was made last week in Niagara. (laughs) Who could that be? Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Well, talk about a dizzying week of experiences for Jada Lee in Niagara. And then, of course, in Toronto at the Blue Jays game. History was made. She's done so many of these media interviews. We'll see if she's still in the mood for another one. On line number four, we say good morning to Jada Lee. Hi, Jada. You're on the air. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Are you sick of doing interviews? Um, a bit. <laughs> yeah, I bet you are. And so that said, I really appreciated watching, you know, over the last few years, we've heard your name and seen you pitch. So congratulations to begin with. Let's talk baseball. So for the first pitch in Niagara against Alberta, what's your throw? Fastball? Fastball, yeah. So what do you got in your repertoire? It used to be, you know, pitchers were fastball, curveball, maybe throwing a changeup. Now it's fastball, slider, those types of pitches. What are you working on? I still got, I'm fastball, curveball, change up, but I'm hoping to throw a slider. What kind of change do you throw? The circle change? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. So what does it take to work on a slider? Who's around here able to give you all the ins and the outs about delivery and arm position and everything to throw a good slider? Oh, well, I have a pitching coach, Noah Anderson, so I work with him for it. Do many people your age have a slider? Uh, a few that I play with do, but not many. Okay, so let's keep talking about the ball. You know, I love baseball. Uh, I think that, you know, every pitch, every hitter is a little game in and of itself. So when you're on the mound, is it possible to keep track of how you pitched one guy the inning before the first rotation through the lineup? What do you look at insofar as the science of baseball? Talk us through how you stand on the rubber and pitch. Uh, Well, mainly I listen to my catcher because he calls the game for most of it. But, like, 
Uh, if I remember one guy that I pitched to before and something worked for him, I'll definitely do the same. But, um, yeah. Do you ever shake off the catcher? Rarely. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, the relationship's important. You want the catchers, you know, catchers really do have a good grip on where the hitter is and their strengths and all those types of things. So that's pretty cool. I know you want to go on and play some NCAA ball and, you know, play for Team Canada. Do you have – I know you can't – give up all the deets and I don't know who you've spoken to but are there a couple of schools on the top of your list where you'd like to pitch uh, I'm not sure yet I have a few offers but I haven't um, made any decisions or anything yet um, yeah are you able to tell us uh, who's made you an offer I don't think so. No? Okay. It's just really exciting to even get that opportunity to know that, that there are schools out there interested in bringing you on board. Okay, so let's stick with the next steps in progression. Because I know you've done all kinds of interviews about are you nervous and all those types of things. And I've heard all those answers. But I know baseball is what you want to talk about, maybe more than the other uh, interviews you've had. So how does a pitcher improve because you can't teach arm speed you can't teach velocity so what can you actually learn to be in position to play in CAA ball to play for Team Canada because if you got the heater you got it if you don't you don't um, a, a lot is like strength building and like mentality work because if you can't like keep it calm on the mound then you're not going to be able to pitch good but um, a lot a lot of mechanics and just um, like finding what works for you best are you a Jays fan I am. A Jays fan. So when you get, we'll talk a bit of your visit to uh, the ballpark there that day. I know they gave you a tour of the building, a tour of the clubhouse. Just for people who have never been in a big league clubhouse, paint a picture of what it's like because it's not like getting dressed down in the dressing rooms of St. Pat's. It's very big, and it's it's pretty cool. There's so many lockers because you don't even think about how big the roster is. But, um, yeah, it's it's really nice. There's the World Series trophies or whatever are outside of it, and it's – it's really cool. So you're a two-way player. You hit when you're at home too, right? I do. Who are some of the Jays that you like to watch that you're big fans of? I got my faves. Who are yours? Um, Vladdy for sure. Yeah. And um, Boba Shett, Espinal, Manoa, Springer. I love Springer. I love his attitude, right? And I do like mm -hmm. Manoa. I liked how he performed at the All-Star game and just taking no prisoners. I like that guy. He's got a bright future. Um, yeah. So with that type of experience, you know, for your teammates, and they got a chance to get down on the field and stuff too. So how I'm not going to talk about other players you play against. You know, there's a girl on the mound. But talk about how supportive and things that, you know, your coaches and your your uh, teammates might be. Because, look, I played competitive sports growing up. When someone felt like an outsider, then it took a long time for the rest of the team to warm up to them, whether it be in hockey or otherwise. What's it like amongst you and your teammates? What do you guys talk about? Does anyone ever bring up the fact that you're a girl, or how does it work? Uh, I mean, sometimes we all joke about it, but... Um... <laughs> No, they're very supportive, and they're all very happy about the Jays thing for sure. I got, I got a few thank yous for that one. Um, no, they're all they're all pretty good about everything, and I've played with most of them since I was younger. So a lot of them are like brothers to me, so it's pretty good. And speaking of brothers, you got two older brothers, so you basically grew up around the ballpark. So baseball is in your blood. Yes. Tell us about your mom and dad, huh? Uh, neither of them played growing up. I mean, my dad played, like, for a bit of fun or whatever, and a few of my aunts and uncles played. But uh, no one in my family really ever played baseball other than my brothers, and they uh, didn't play for very long. Are you better than both of your brothers? 
Yes. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt you are. Uh, do you think that all the pressure you've, well, not pressure, all the interviews that you've been cre- requested to do across the country, you know, Blue Jay Central, all these things, I, I don't know you're a bit tired of it, and I totally get you, get it, and I'll let you go now in a second. Do you think that, it, you know, you got, it got easier, and even though the questions are repetitive, do you think some of those experiences can also help you as a ball player? Because you're talking about remaining calm. You can't make good decisions and good pitches if you're stressed on the mound. And some of the stress that comes with media interviews, can you learn anything from that nonsense to apply to being a baseball player? I think mentality-wise, for sure. Like, as I kept doing them, it got a lot easier. And it's kind of like the same way as, like, pitching, like stepping on the mound. Like, if there's a crowd and stuff, the more you do it, the easier it gets and stuff. I think it's brilliant. Uh, Jada, I'm going to let you go. I know you rushed home from Niagara after all the experiences that you had in Ontario. Go right down to St. Pat's to cheer on the uh, girls, or pardon me, the women's uh, U21s at the Nationals. So really appreciate you making time for this program. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. We'll be following your career, which I'm going to just guess is going to be outstanding. Thank you. Thanks, Jada. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. It's Jada Lee, 16-year-old, history-making in Niagara. So I figured we'd talk a little baseball with her, right? You know, she was nervous and all those types of things. Anyway, good stuff right there. Uh, let's go to line number two, Graydon Pelly around the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Doing grand. How you doing? Not bad, thanks. Patty, uh, I just want to talk for a couple of minutes this morning about the announcement that was made uh, back on May 26th uh, this year about the pre-kindergarten pilot that's set to start in September. Right. Now, Patty, I just retired from teaching this past June, both my wife and I, and we see the importance, and I am 100% in support of this pre-kindergarten program. I think it's very, very valuable, and teaching for the number of years we did, we see the importance of getting kids in school. And I don't want people to think I'm, I'm speaking negative of it, but... What I want to talk about this morning, uh, when the announcement was made, and I'm here now looking at the uh, news release, the pre-kindergarten pilot set, uh, and the the first sentence of the announcement is, today the provincial government announced more than 30 locations for a pre-kindergarten learning program that will open 2022-2023. Now, Patty, I'm sure that hoodles and hoodles and hoodles of parents with young children across the province we're dancing because of this program. However, their dance was probably, a number of them, a lot of them, no doubt, their dance was probably slowed down some when they read the next sentence, which said, the pilot will result in approximately 600 new regulated child care spaces in communities throughout the province. Now, I've listened to your program for a long time, and recently, of course, I've heard you talk with people about how tough it is to make ends meet and how the price of everything is so high and so on and so on. So, Patty, when we think about it, I think, I mean, $15 a day to a lot of people is not much money, right? I mean, let's face it. But to some others, $15 a day, $75 a week or $300 a month is a chunk of change. And a lot of people, a lot of people... Uh, looking at this and saying we're so excited for pre-kindergarten, but now what it really is is a regulated childcare that's got to be paid for. And I'm sure when they heard the announcement about pre-kindergarten, they had no thought in their mind that it was something that they were going to have to pay for. Okay, I mean, not to be 
saucy, but we're always paying for it, regardless if we pay for it out of our checking account and or my tax dollars. But $15 a day with uh, approved curriculum delivered by people who understand how to do it versus what is well-intentioned and really good programs at daycare facilities, they're kind of two different things. And then, of course, it becomes $10 a day in 2023 for the yeah, child I care spaces. That, yeah. So, I mean, isn't there just still a massive upside to this? Absolutely, Patty. Absolutely. But what I'm, what I'm, my point that I'm making today is that there are going to be children, and and I think about in particular like parents that have a twin, a set of twin going to school, for example. Uh, that's going to be six hundred dollars a month. Uh, so my point is, there is going to be a certain group of people. Even though this program is phenomenal, I agree with it, so on and so forth, but there's going to be a certain group of, of students that are not going to be able to avail of this program. Okay, and it's it's a pilot in only 30 locations, and I'm not even sure how prepared anybody is. I know renovations had to be done to some of the schools to accommodate the pre-K. For the sake of conversation and the whole so-called devil's advocate, if I wasn't in a regulated pre-K space at $15 a day with approved curriculum, would these children then be in daycares, whether it be regulated or unregulated, costing more without the upside of the curriculum and what comes within carefully developed pre-K programs. So are they going to actually pay less for better in this program, in your opinion, versus in a daycare costing more without said curriculum? Your thoughts? Absolutely. Absolutely, Patty. I, I totally agree with you. However, I guess I'm talking about and referring to the group that their children are not in daycare. They're at home with their parents. And their parents, some of them are not going to work because they can't afford childcare. And there's a group, there's a, a certain group of people. And I just come out of the school system. I was teaching on the West Coast in Deer Lake. And in fact, the school in Deer Lake is one of the, the, the pilot schools for this program. But there are going to be uh, young children that are at home that are not going to be able to avail of this we call pre-kindergarten, which I think is somewhat of a... Of a uh, uh, you know, misleading when it goes on to say it's regulated daycare. It's because if it was really truly pre-kindergarten, it would be free. But that's besides the point. But there are going to be a group of young students in the, on the, in that area that parents are not going to be able to afford to pay the three hundred dollars a week, or the three hundred dollars a month for child for the the. Uh, regulated daycare in Deer Lake. Fair enough. I mean, because when we talk education, it's all about uh, accessibility and equity. No no one doesn't, there's no one left out of being able to register for kindergarten, regardless of your socioeconomic status. And that's the way it always should be. It's public education. Yeah. Should it be applied to pre-K in the pilot project? Maybe so. It's a fair point and a, a decent conversation that we should engage in. Will it be uh, brought into the entire system as now what we talk about K-12? Will it be now pre-K-12, to consequently falling in under the funding coming all from the provincial government? Even though as an educator, you know that that's a, a fallacy as well as yeah. a husband of one. We buy lots of stuff that ends up in the school, I can tell you that. And I don't begrudge, yeah. but teachers paying out of their own pocket for different things and stuff. Look, education is not free, but I understand your point you're making about pre-K, and some families will be unable to afford to put their children in. Fair enough. And, and, and Patty, the thing about it is, let's look at it. We can reflect back upon every program, every assistance program, whether it's with electricity, whether it's with food, whatever it is, every program 
it always comes out and say you have, if you're making X number of dollars to these number of dollars, you know, you don't avail of this or it's for a certain group. Yeah. So can there be, even in this pilot part, because I think the earlier that people can get their children in school, the better, because I've, I've been in the system. You're, you're, like you said, you're, you're married to a teacher and they understand the importance of having children ready to, to learn. But the thing about it is throughout every program government has announced there's always been, you know, uh, income for example, yeah, a means test. Income, you avail of this program or not? So, can there be something in this program? Because let's face it, this is one of the most important programs that government can announce is when it comes to the education of our children. They're the future of our province. And the thing about it is, they're, they're, the government needs to look at now. Well, we need to think about the, the, the group of students that will not be able to avail of this, whether it's in the pilot process or if it goes on to be, like you said, integrated into the system or whatever. But there needs to be something in place whereby if there's a family that can absolutely not afford to do this, that they should be given opportunities for their children to learn with their peers. Because let's face it, mm-hmm. a child who goes into the, uh, the uh, pre-kindergarten program this year is going to be far more ahead of the student that does not go in and enters kindergarten next year. I understand. I'll put it on my list for the minister. We're scheduled to have Minister Hagian. Well, not scheduled. We're considering uh, inviting him on in the very near future because there's a bunch of preparedness issues that we need to talk about, the results of the high school symposium, this issue, and many, many others. I appreciate the time this morning, Graydon. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for uh, taking my call. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with wildfire. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Randy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Happy to do it. Thank you. Patty, I just want to just throw out a, a thank you card or a bouquet to our Newfoundland Labrador Search and Rescue Association. Once again, in the last couple of weeks, they've demonstrated uh, by their actions in central Newfoundland, uh, they were uh, involved in um, traffic control, access control on those fire sites down there. And uh, again, we, we've you know we've seen these men and women travel from different parts of the province to central Newfoundland to uh, assist our forestry people in doing what they had to do to, to get those fires knocked down. And of course, Patty, we've uh, we've just seen we're on the tail end, of course, of that uh, of the inquiry, the, the Burton uh, Winters inquiry, and of course, the recommendations that came out of that was that you know our, our province should be actually funding the the organization more and, and i'll tell you patty i can tell you from from a personal experience with them and a professional uh, past with them that they uh, every nickel that you put into that organization is, is a well-spent nickel and we're, we're so lucky in this province to have uh, and patty I'm, I'm going with old numbers here now and i may be way off but we've got at least a thousand people involved in ground search and rescue in this province here right now uh, in, in excess I think of 20 teams across Newfoundland and Labrador mm-hmm. who are you know are willing to, to you know petty that to, to jump out of the uh, at a bed at any time of the morning night or whatever and and to go look for the lost or, or assist our province in any of the uh, situations where we need their their uh, human resources uh, targeted so that's what I want to say this morning Patty I just want to I want to get that out there I know that uh, 
under the uh, under the guidance of Harry Blackmore, uh, as you as you probably know, is the is the president of the association across the province. You know, they do yeoman's work daily, uh, weekly, monthly, annually, and and to have have a, a battalion of a thousand volunteers, more than a thousand, I think, Patty. Uh, again, I. I I, uh, I stand to be corrected on that, but uh, uh, of people that you can call out, and, and uh, that's where I want to go this morning, Patty, just to, to positively reinforce the, uh, the the message that we've already had the last number of months since that terrible tragedy in Labrador with the little uh, uh, Winters boy. That uh, we've still got, we've still got people like that that are willing to get out there and do it do the job. I imagine Burton Winters di- died in 2012. Man. That's right, sir. Absolutely. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the work that the uh, search and rescue crews does is amazing. We actually have a rover that works here with us, uh, so really appreciate what he does. So the funding is important. And Harry, I tell you what, he's been fighting the good fight for years about funding. So again, I'm just plucking numbers from my my memory bank. They used to get about $200,000 a year. And now the funding is a million bucks in the most recent budget. I remember that because I was in the lock-in. So equipment upgrades. I mean, the volunteers not only putting the energy and effort to look for people who are lost or to help in whatever capacity, but doing fundraising as well, you know, for equipment and things. So they needed this money. Training for the volunteers, the equipment upgrades. They're actually going to create... Uh, five new search and rescue crews in Labrador. So, and this is all based on the recommendations from the Igliorte inquiry. So this is really encouraging news. It takes money to fuel some of these operations. When we say volunteer, we shouldn't have volunteers having to not only put their time and effort and energy in along with their own money. We need to fund them because if we had to back out those thousand searchers, how could the province cover it? Short answer is they couldn't. On 100%, Patty, you you nailed it, brother. You just you just hit the bullseye. When when we've got these people out there trying to make a buck to keep that skidoo or that ATV going or that command post truck going, this this is so unfair, Patty. That 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 you uh, that we download that kind of uh, that kind of activity or, or or fundraising to a group that's already giving uh, giving from their pockets themselves. And uh, I'll tell you, Patty, I, you know, uh, I remember back uh, we were we were in a, in a situation where we moved to a, a new community, and our boy uh, just made friends with a friend with a little boy in the community, and he got lost. And at that time, Patty, search and rescue were really uh, ground search and rescue in the province really wasn't alive. So you you gathered people from the community. But I'll tell you today, uh, that same little boy is he's a he's a young man now, and he's doing well. But uh, today, if he if he was in in peril, I'll tell you, Patty, that uh, that phone number that you call for ground search and rescue in this province, I, I tell you, my friend, it it, uh, it uh, it's it's heartwarming to see what happens, what kind of uh, uh, what kinds of activities get put in place. Uh, I'm not sure if a lot of people realize this, uh, uh, Patty, uh, and, and you, you probably do, but I'm not sure if our province is well aware of it. But Harry Blackmore. Who was the national president for the for the uh, for the country? Harry and and the team, uh, Harry and his crew right here, are actually even in fact if there's a search going on in Comox, B.C. this morning or in in Brandon, Manitoba, Harry is while he's not uh, uh, fully targeted on that search as as one that he would be deploying his resources to, he's aware of what's going on and he's uh, he, he's uh, he's giving guidance and he's uh, he's 
I, I wouldn't say he's directing, but he does have an awareness of what's going on across the uh, across the country. And I know, uh, Patty, that's, uh, I'm not sure if it's, uh, again, uh, my friend, I haven't checked uh, I haven't checked with him lately or whatever, but the uh, the national SAR scene, which is their national, uh, their national get-together, is coming up in Newfoundland and Labrador in the very, geez, maybe next year, Patty, uh, again, my friend, I, I may be off the mark, but that's going to be held here in Newfoundland and Labrador next year. And I think it's going to be centered right here in St. John's, and that's that's a major event, Harry they, or uh, Patty. Sorry, they uh, they call uh, they call all the provinces, all the territories together, and they their their teams are invited to come to the province. They participate in search and rescue games. They have educational sessions. They have a, a myriad of of, uh, of uh, things that happen during during that week long event, and. Uh, it uh, and Harry and his group uh, Blackmore. I mean, uh, as you know, he grew up at Search and Rescue. He's uh, he's uh, he's poor old dad who's, who's who's passed along. He was involved in Search and Rescue way back in the day, and Harry must have picked it up at the dinner table and, and yeah. realized that this is where life goes. And a life in sports too for Harry. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Ver- just because I'm late for the news, I'll leave it there. But we'll be okay. uh, keen to follow that conference, and I appreciate you uh, picking up on the the importance and the impact that the Search and Rescue. Volunteers have made in fighting these fires as well. Good to have you on, Randy. Thanks, Patty. Take, Take care of yourself, sir. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, time for the news break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Do not go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Okay, let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey. Good morning, Pleeman. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, just wanted to follow up with the fire situation, of course, here in Central, uh, seeing that the things are basically stabilizing. I, I'd like to, I'd like your last caller, I guess, I'd like to throw a bouquet out to uh, all the uh, workers and helpers that, uh, that that lend support, especially, again, the exploit search and rescue, rovers, triple bay eagles, uh, municipalities, groups and organizations, you know, that, uh, and even residents that per, per partake in some of this uh, activity and fire departments you know they, they were a great great help in this and again of course the officials and, and forestry crew uh, for their uh, their great work in in all aspects you know and so it's uh, it was a team effort and uh, you know hopefully hopefully we're on the downside of this let's hope so i mean uh, the folks in charge of all the operations are they seem if you listen or read between the lines they're cautiously optimistic that they may have reached the so-called corner and now on the other side i know one of the fires still deemed to be out of control one is some 20 percent contained but it feels like they've got through the worst of it let's hope that's right because mother nature can always turn on a dime and next thing you know we're in a bigger problem than we have today but fingers crossed and yes bravo to everyone involved you know whether it be the red cross or the salvation army or the lions club and putting them up at the maximum camp and taking care of them and the ground in search of rescuers and the residents. Look, there's a lot of people to thank when all this happens. Yes, it is, Patty, and, and we're certainly grateful to all of them, I must say. But, Patty, uh, my main call, of course, is the, uh, is, is, you know, I, I think it's time now for the government to sit down and, uh, and review our, our forest fire capacity. You know, it's uh, it's something that uh, I, I don't think right now the government was prepared for the multiple fires and, and the fires that we had in, in huge huge capacities. You know, we did have uh, five bombers back in 2018. One of those certainly struck a rock uh, while filling, and, and, you know, we were left with four. 
just recently, uh, you know, in the House of Assembly, uh, you know, the Minister, Minister Tra- uh, Loveless, Tra- Minister of Transportation, you know, he was quoted as saying, you know, the four has certainly met our needs. So if the four has certainly met our needs, you know, that, that certainly tells us where we're to in that position. Uh, you know, uh, prior to that, you know, Minister Bragg said that the uh, the bomber, you know, that was damaged would probably be up for sale. There was still no t- no action taken on that. Uh, Minister Crocker, prior to that, you know, said that we'll rotate the planes around to areas where the highest, you know, they're, they're needed the highest. Well, you know, Patty, they did that. They tried that. But with the multiple fires that we had, uh, you know, by the time uh, bombers and crews got to got to those fires, they were out of control, which ended up, you know, like uh, putting the, the central Newfoundland on high alert. And, and the government ended up calling state of emergency. Yeah, I mean, in times of the essence, when we talk about first responders, whether it be forest fires or anything else. And if we ever had five, we must have thought we needed five. So to know that one has been out of commission for years now and no move made on it, I think it's a fair question. I did say off the top of the show, I don't know if you heard me, but when some of these things are ongoing, I'm glad... Some politicians, some parties wait until it seems like it's an appropriate time to talk about these types of things as opposed to try to cash in politically right away. You know, like when the state of emergency was called and all all of a sudden the government dropped the ball. But there is, I think you're right. When we assess what we have for human resources, for uh, water bombers or whatever else, because if we don't prepare, then we chase our tail, things get worse. And we cause cause more damage than required. So I think it's completely appropriate that we have a firm assessment about whether or not we need another bomber or whatever else. Well, we, we certainly do, Patty. I mean, the government uh, again needs to uh, needs to sit down and uh, and look at upgrades to uh, to our forest fire protection areas. You know, uh, again today, and, and thank God for them. Uh, Nova Scotia is sending in uh, 20, 20 crew members, you know, the on the ground crew members to help with those forest fires, and we need them, and we appreciate it. And uh, there's no strike on anybody. And uh, and again, to Quebec for sending in the four water bombers. You know, we've sent out uh, we've sent out crews of our own to different areas in the past as well. So you know that works. But we need to sit down and be uh, be alert and be be prepared for for what can happen. I mean, so you know, we're still in dry conditions. We're still in hot and dry, you know, hot and dry conditions. Uh, this can happen anytime. Uh, of course, uh, you're 100 percent right. I appreciate you making time. I don't know how we're going to see how this assessment unfolds, but we'll be happy to follow up because. The fire might be around my neighborhood and or the West Coast or in Labrador, which we saw in 2017 which, with extensive fire. So good for uh, good on you for making time for the show, Pleeman. Appreciate it. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, will I not take another call before the break, Dave? What do you think is the right thing to do? Okay, a uh, quick check out on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Of course, my favorite is when you join us live on the program. So lots of different issues broached off the top. I think uh, Graydon Pelly makes an interesting point regarding the pre-kindergarten in 30 pilot locations does come with a cash-out-of-pocket requirement from the family. If we are going to see this move beyond the pilot project stage and become a full part of the now pre-K to 12 educational system, then the next conversation has to be about access for all, you know, and equity. So it's a fair conversation that we will indeed uh, advance here on the program when and if we have the right guests on or just whoever wants to chime in based on being a parent of a a four-year-old coming up for the pre-K year and it's not that far away. All right, let's take a break. One of the one of the entities that I think does yeoman's work for the country 
and I think it's fair to characterise them as apolitical, is the Parliamentary Budget Office. It's one thing to listen to the parties with their own specific bluster or rhetoric about one policy or another, whether it be the government side and everything's rosy and or the opposition where everything's bad, the Parliamentary Budget Office does a pretty good job in boiling down the facts. Whether it be with current policies and spending, whether or not the government has been forthright with the numbers associated with one policy or another, looking into the future regarding spending and debt and deficit and you know, net debt to GDP and sustainability and what have you. They have a recent report out. It was sometime late last month. Tom wants to talk about it after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's do it. Line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I just want I want to start with just a quick flashback to last week with the uh, City of St. John's announcing their raises. And I just wanted to highlight the fact that um, the city manager, when these 11% gets passed along, will be making an extra $22,000 because uh, management, in most cases, in the public service, receives the same raises as the uh, people underneath them. And the other thing I want to highlight as well is that um, is that the uh, contract that was signed actually has a $1,000 signing bonus. I'm not sure where these $1,000 signing bonuses come from, but I know if we have hundreds of thousands of dollars to pass along, it would be nice to to give it to the uh, people who need it the most, the ones who are really suffering. Because as you've talked about in the past, uh, property tax is kind of a little bit regressive in that it doesn't really matter how much money you have or don't have. If you have a home, we all pay the same amount. Yep. So I just want to remind everybody, this is real money, and and just like how we run our province, the city is no different. It seems like they look after um, the, the senior bureaucrats and the uh, unions and our employees who all work very hard, and it's not personal. It's just that at some point there has to be a connection made between the fact that as we increase what we spend on our public sector, it impacts directly the people who pay the taxes. The, the governments are not these magic entities that have money trees in their backyards. The, the money has to come either from us or from borrowing. In the case of the cities, they're not allowed to borrow to, to make operating expenses. They can borrow it for capital works. But somehow we've got to, got to connect the dots uh, you know, with the people who make the decisions. Fair enough. And I think you want to talk PBO. I do. So uh, as you indicated, the, the PBO, which is the Parliamentary Budget Office, analyzes and tries to uh, give good data and good recommendations uh, as to where they think we're going. And, uh, and they just came out the end of July with a report on the sustainability of both the federal government and the uh, pension plan and the um, provincial governments. And, and overall, they, they've indicated that the federal government seems to be uh, doing okay and the pension plans are doing good, relatively speaking. All seems sustainable with their projections. However, they've raised some red flags for some of the provinces. Newfoundland, depending on how you look at it, is the one that seems to be the most concerning and 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 amazingly enough, they they use numbers that are, you know, what comes right off the province's balance sheet, but only specifically the net debt. And and the net debt right now, we're saying is around sixteen billion dollars. But I, I really think all of us need to to realize that it, it's actually way more than that. Um, if you look at the net debt off our balance sheet, it's sixteen billion dollars. But then we add the Muskrat Falls debt, which is seven point nine, unfunded pension liabilities, four point nine unfunded group health and life insurance retirement benefits, $3 billion. The new Cornbrook Hospital long-term care homes, new mental hospital, new Her Majesty's Presidentiary, these are all payday loans. Basically, we're, we're basically paying people, uh, businesses, very high interest, probably around 89 to 10% return on, on investment so that they'll pay for it and then we pay them back. 
1.6 billion almost long-term debt of healthcare corps 199 million unfunded pension liabilities of mon 238 million unfunded post-employment benefits of mon 229 million unfunded post-employment benefits of nalcor 144 million you add all that up it's almost 35 billion dollars so in the in the pbo's analysis they say that we're about 35% net debt to gdp ratio and that just basically means that based on our gdp of say 30 billion dollars or whatever they're saying it's 16 billion so that so they're saying we're about 35%, but in actual fact, we're well over 100%. Um, is what our actual what our actual percentage is, and we talk about that. That doesn't mean a lot to people, but it basically means that we are increasing our debt every 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 year, no matter how rosy a picture the budgets that we've had. Uh, every year we're borrowing. This year we're borrowing three billion dollars of that. A little over half is for new spending, and that's to make payroll. That's to buy bandages for hospitals. That's to that's to pay for water bombers. And, and just flipping back to the water bombers, Quebec doesn't just graciously send us water bombers and we don't have to pay for it. We have to pay them. It's probably an awful lot of money. I have no idea how much it would be, but it's probably millions and millions of dollars. Plus, we would put the fuel in it. And so all these things have costs, and we're making choices as we borrow more money to reduce how much money there is to left to pay for everything else. Yeah, I mean, some things, emergency response, uh, I don't know if we can get – I mean, personally, I don't think quibbling about borrowing money or paying for water bombers to put out fires is necessarily part and parcel with where we find ourselves, fiscally speaking. Uh, in addition to the comments you make on the PBO report, you know, nobody wants to hear it. If, you're, if you don't like the liberal government, fair enough, I, I don't care who you like. But the net debt to GDP, comparisons across the G7, G20, sustainability long term, I mean, the PBO has called out the government many, many times. So people just pick and choose whether or not they like the reports coming from the PBO. But one of the key focus areas, not only on the national scene, but on the provincial scenes, has been the number of Canadian retirees, has been labor market uh, forces, has been about aging population, and how it impacts economic outlook was absolutely part of how it's factored in. So it wasn't just snapshot today. It was sustainability long term. And so that aging population issue across the country, and very importantly in this province, was a key focus of the office. It was, and you know, they actually said that that um, when you look at the long term, our net debt r- ratio was going to c- increase dramatically. So basically, they're they're looking at our trends using their very low number, this 35 percent now, 25 years, 118 percent, 25 years for then, 259 percent with doing nothing. With doing nothing. Well, that's right. With doing the way we're doing it, and they said we basically have to pretty aggressively have to reduce our spending. Because they're also estimating that our revenues are going to continue in a downward trend, and um, and deficits long term would 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 worsen. So so all those things are just you know. But when you overlay it and you listen to the the general population, it isn't just government, and it's not just business, it's not just unions, it's just everybody. All of us are just more, more, more. That's really on this program and and everything you hear. It's we need more, we need more, we need more. And I don't know how we all realize i was speaking to a gentleman the other day and he said that him and his wife moved back from ontario and he said he couldn't believe how everybody's hand was out like you know he, he said it's one of the biggest mistakes they made because it's just this overall mentality of not we're going to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and figure out how to solve our problems and how to be more sustainable because the pbo clearly said we are not sustainable uh, and and but yet here we go it's it's more 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 and I, I don't know what kind of sea change it would take in how we all look at the province and ourselves and our own responsibility 
for our fiscal situation or our health situation or our environmental situation. And and it just I just feel like we just need to keep having these conversations. But the flip side of it is I do believe that within the province that there's a sea change, that people are starting to realize. Now, they just need – we need to connect the dots, and shows like this are excellent for that. But our leaders, when they come on and talk, they need to – I'd love just love to hear all the different leaders just acknowledge the fact that, hey, we have to do this within a fiscal envelope. We have to look after our – environment. We have to look after ourselves health-wise and, and put the onus back on us, but while being good fiscal, good stewards of our futures. Because I don't know who's looking after the future right now. It really does seem like the vast majority of us, whether it's business or private sector, seem to be just living in the moment. And and it's just not like everybody, including the PBO, keeps pointing to the future. And it, and it, and it's it's not great, but it could be great. We've got inflation, looking at which is really bad we got inflation we got interest rates going up i mean the, when we had our last budget they didn't have the interest rate increases and, and at the time minister cody said well if interest rates go up that could be very hard on our fiscal situation well interest rates have gone up and then there's a risk of recession one of the worst things that could happen to us i mean it's happened twice in the last seven years i don't think i need to remind people we almost couldn't make payroll and yet at the same time we're increasing payroll every time you hear a government announcement it's Payroll, payroll, payroll is going up. Whether it's with doctors, and 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 all our public, all our public sector unions are all in the process of negotiating now. All their collective agreements are expiring, and so market down, you know, up it goes, and we're at such risk. And and as a collective, we don't seem to want to talk about it. So I just call on everybody to try and just realize our place and and worry about the future for our children, and our grandchildren, and stop living in the moment. That's just what I try and do every day. Appreciate the time, Tom. Take care, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's call line number three. Penny, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I was kind of disappointed with you when you said you were going to play a song with, by the monkeys for today. Uh, how so? I was figuring it was going to be Elvis, but... Well, I'm going to play Elvis at the bottom of the show. Yeah, that's what your producer said. And uh, yep. I said, uh, I, I said I seen the monkeys back when they were in Maybelline Gardens, and he said, "Oh, you did." I said, "What do you?" I wanted to get uh, get you online. I said, "Well, I suppose." <laughs> you saw them in Maple Gardens. That's fantastic. When was that? That was back in 1967. Boy, they weren't too long a band by then, because you know, no. interestingly, the monkeys were conceived as a group based on their television show. The comedy yeah, they, series they, they before they were a band. Musicians, no, they never were. Yeah. The only one that was a musician was uh, Mike Nesmith. He played played around with guitar. And then, of course, you know, very quickly, Dolans and Peter Tork managed to pick yeah. up their uh, their game and uh, perform at the level of Nesmith. But you're right; they were a comedy troupe before they were a band, and then they went on. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and 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 the, the funny part about it was that the the, the fellow that opened for them was Jimi Hendrix, of all people. Really. Yeah, what a what a contrast! No, no. doubt, Jimi Hendrix and the Monkeys at Maple Leaf Gardens in 1967. <laughs> not bad. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty different, I must say. I mean, and here's a comedy troupe that goes on to be a band. They sold something like 75 million records. Yeah, they 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 became pretty big, I must say. Yeah, 100. percent So, were you living in Toronto at the time? Yeah. What, yeah. what were you doing born, in Toronto? Born and bred. Born and bred. Oh, you're from Toronto. Yeah. Very good. I had the good sense to marry a Newfoundlander, though. That a girl. <laughs> How long have you been here? Uh, I've been married 53 years, so I've been here 40-odd uh, years. I can't do the math quick enough, but you weren't at the concert with your, with your current husband. No, I was at <laughs> my one of my school girlfriends who happened to be madly in love with 
uh, Davy Jones. How about that? Yeah, but I, I was a Mickey Dolan's girl. I always liked the funny guy, so <laughs> it worked out good for us. They're great. I really like the band. Uh, I've seen a couple episodes of their their TV series, uh, The Monkeys, and I think they had a reprieve with something else. Uh, hey, hey, were the monkeys or something? I know that's one of their movies too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and and they're on YouTube. I, I watch them on YouTube every now and again just for a giggle, just to see, you know. How absolutely preposterous some of the stories were. It totally was. So when you went to see them, there wasn't much Monkeys music out there to latch onto. I mean, I'm a Believer was already released, I think. Last Train to Clarksville was released. So you went, obviously, to see the Monkeys, not Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Oh, yes, obviously, yeah. I think he was booed off the stage, actually. <laughs> How dare they? Yeah. Now, nowadays, I mean, you know, back then, though, it was, you know, it, it, it just didn't seem like a good match. Well, I don't mind Jimmy myself. Uh, I don't either, but, you know, with 13 and 14-year-old girls and then this guy coming up with this, you know, he he wasn't exactly, uh, he was more restricted than he was parental, you know. Oh, yeah, that was R-rated experience for sure. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, all the stoners were there for him, and then the young girls were there for the for the monkeys, and we had to wait, listen to this, what we figured, old geezer that was. <laughs> <laughs> All the yeah, stoners he, were there yeah, for he Jimmy. Couldn't, he couldn't even remember the words to his songs and stuff like that, you know. Oh <laughs> we, were, we were getting very impatient. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great, Penny. I'm and so pleased. Many thousand tickets sold out in four hours, so that wasn't too bad. Not too bad at all. Fantastic no. story. Yeah, yeah. Thanks yeah. for coming on. Okay, you're welcome. You have a good day. Oh, by the way, I got to ask you a question <laughs> sure. now. I've been wondering this for a long time. How how is how is Bill Rowe? Is he still around? Uh, you know what? I haven't seen Bill in a while. I believe he spends the most of the, his time in Florida. But okay. I, I did see him a few years ago. He was doing great. And he sent me an email not so long ago about his new book that's out there. So Bill seems to be doing just fine in his retirement. Okay. I just wondered if we, you know, I hadn't heard any, anything about him. And I used to really enjoy him, too. So I just wondered if he was still, I know he's getting kind of long in the tooth. <laughs> I'll pass it along. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. I wanted to try to be, you know. I know. I'm only fooling around. Yeah. yeah no, Bill's great. I actually took over for the legend Bill Rowe twice. Once yeah. in the afternoon, once in the morning. So that's following the big footsteps. Yeah, yeah. He was. I, I found him really good. He was very. He was very fair and he was very blunt. That he was. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. Okay. Good Thanks. enough then. Okay, Penny. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Have a good day. Bye. Uh, yeah. Jimmy, <laughs> the Stoners were there for Jimmy. That's pretty funny. So who was in the Jimi Hendrix experience? Noel Redding and what's the Mitch Mitchell or is that his name? Something like that. I should be able to remember those things. Anyway, maybe we'll play some Jimmy. <laughs> anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going back to Niagara to get a week one roundup and a week two forecast from the Chef de Mission as Gary Martin. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Uh, welcome back to the program. Let's go to Niagara. Line number five. Say good morning, Gary Martin. He's the NL Chef de Mission representing the province. Good morning, Gary. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having us this morning. Couldn't be happier to have you on. As a matter of fact, we had Jada Lee. I'm sure she's drove with the media interviews, but she was on the program a little while ago. So not only Jada made history, let's have a quick look back. Chris Weeks in the pool. First gold medal since 1993. He led the, the swimming team down the escalator at the airport triumphantly with three medals around his neck. Eight medals is a just an extraordinary week, number one. Yeah, Patty. I mean, uh, the swimmers, you know, uh, all the swimmers, Chris, uh, Nathan, uh, just phenomenal effort in the pool, and uh, Thomas as well. Uh, interestingly enough, I had a ch- chance to have a word with um, Coach um, with Duffy. Um, this was a bit of a road for them. They're increasing their work in their high-performance program, uh, a lot of collaboration amongst the province with the other swim clubs, a uh, really good sign of things to come as we prepare for 2025, and a bit of modeling maybe that some of our other sports can, can encompass. And really, truly, what's interesting in the swim team is truly a provincial team with, with representation right across the province. Yeah, we got a lot of strong swim clubs. That's one thing for sure. How did they, you know, because there's a couple of things. You need the high-level coaching, and then you need high-level competition. And for a long, long time, the only way to get the competition in particular was to travel. So how have they mimicked competition? Because unless you're pushed, it's hard to advance and, and lower your times. Well, I think, Patty, it's an interesting point. Uh, it really embodies, because as you know, during the COVID, actually, some of the pools were closed. Mm-hmm. So I think this is this is really a testament to to the program, I think, and their, their dry land training program and their out-of-the-pool training. And uh, I had a, a sister, my sister swam competitively over the years, and swimmers, as you know, are just a very committed bunch of trainers and uh, really for them is as soon as the COVID broke um, they really got out to a bunch of meets uh, traveled to the mainland when it was when it was open but I think it's the um, their success again is related to not over that one year but over that three you know with a nice high performance over a three to four year training period which typically we see in Canada games is a four year lead up to actual competition so I think that's where where they're seeing the, su- the success you know and Chris's success I think is uh, there's uh, some talk I think that he may become a car athlete very soon so uh, kudos to Chris for his work that he, that he put in. And he's only been swimming competitively for like four years and he put some of his successes back to his uh, time as a uh, martial artist you know you know where your hands are when you're trying to breathe and swim and think and you know, all that that symphony you need between all your different moving parts so it's just a terrific story uh, yeah. and then you talk about the three-year churn for folks out there who don't realize to make a Canada Games team takes minimum two years the tryouts are extensive and of course you got to try to local localize them in gander to make it easy and then some trips to town and all this type of stuff it's a long road add to it we've got at least two athletes representing the province that are competing in both weeks in two different sports which i find to be remarkable Yes, I mean the typical, you know, training program for Canada Games starts typically four years before before the games. Yep. And uh, the good thing about that, Patty, like we have one of our athletes, uh, Cameron Pennell, who's a two-week athlete, participated in baseball in week one, and now is here for uh, men's volleyball. And uh, as an example, I think you know, in speaking with with Coach Coates of the baseball and Coach Christopher of the volleyball, there's there's some good cooperation and collaboration amongst those sports. 
sorts to facilitate the development of those athletes at the high performance level. So I think that's great to see for us in our PSO structure within the province. And, uh, you know, I think it uh, bodes well for the development of the athlete and opportunities either, you know, at the national level with a national team, or if it doesn't come to that, for some scholarships to get an education uh, at that high level as well. Yeah, I wish we had full free rides for athletes in the country. We don't. They're partial scholarships, but every bit helps. Uh, apparently, that young man who plays baseball and volleyball, he's apparently an incredible athlete and one of probably our best volleyball players, so we wish him good luck. Okay, so we had a great week one. Now we've got diving, track and field, rowing, volleyball, and others. What are you looking forward to, Gary? Give us some idea about where we think we have some more medal hopes, if you know. Well, Patty, I think you know uh, we for for week one uh, the strategy amongst the amongst Team NL was uh, quiet. You know, uh, we had some conversations, and and um, Minister Crocker was looking for some sense of who's going to meddle and all that. We 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 stayed pretty quiet on that. So we're going to keep with that philosophy for week two. I mean, I think there's area there's areas that uh, that could be good and do and be successful, but uh, we're going to stay keep it a low profile and hope for the best and I mean uh, we had a uh, contingent welcome meeting last night uh, uh, down at Brock uh, Rugby Field and uh, you know we encourage the contingent to uh, reflect on what our, our, our fellow athletes and sports did in, in week one and uh, to just you know we can do it right believe in yourselves we took that strategy uh, you know coming into this and we had developed uh, do your best nothing less that approach in working with Dr. Hancock at Memorial and uh, that's the focus we're going to have and I'm very confident Patty that we will continue to see uh, improved results over all our sports into week two as we start here this morning. Yeah I don't want to jinx anybody uh, so fair enough that's probably a wise play by you and your team. Uh, very quickly what are the facilities like? Oh, uh, they're fabulous facilities here. You know, the state-of-the-art uh, Canada Games Park uh, right here on Brock Campus, uh, which we'll see our uh, uh, rugby, or excuse me, we'll see our uh, men's volleyball this week and the uh, male lacrosse. And right outside the door there is the new uh, track and track and field facility. And um, out in Grimsby, Grimsby, our male softball team is uh, active with a couple of games today. Um, you know, again, uh, might want to keep an eye on them. We're traditionally strong in, in fastball with uh, several members from home on the national program, as you, as everybody is aware. So those are, you know, a few to watch for. And uh, as I said, uh, I think we, we've seen improvements uh, in our placings moving forward, and I think we'll continue to see that this week as well. Yeah, we're just a couple, medal, a couple of medals behind Nova Scotia to win the Atlantic Canadian little mini competition. That's always part of it. Good to have you on, Gary. Appreciate the time. Good luck and enjoy. Enjoy this week. Uh, uh, thanks, Patty, and uh, just a shout out uh, from myself on a personal note to our to our mission team. We're often sort of the forgotten group, but that's our support team here that supports all the sports. They've been a fabulous group, and uh, I'd like to thank them all very much uh, from from myself. That's to make things have been going very well. Here, here. Good to have you on, Gary. Thanks for having us, Patty. T take care. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Gary Martin. He's the NL chef, the chief of the mission up in Niagara. We're doing great. Let's take a break. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the advocacy coordinator at the St. John's Status of Women Council. That's Bridget Clark. Good morning, Bridget. You're on the air. 
Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program. Before we get into some of the report and the recommendations and a better understanding of pay equity, what it means federally and provincially, one of the things that you'll hear and I hear all the time is that the gap is manufactured. People will say and tell you that the, ra- the reason behind the gap and the disparity between how much women make and men make is because women work in these traditionally underpaid fields far more prominently than men do. Your reaction to that endless pushback? Yeah, good question. So the wage gap refers to the difference in average incomes between groups of people. And a lot of the time, for good reason, we're looking at the gender wage gap. And that's because of the very real, vast and varying differences in incomes. And even though pay equity is not synonymous with the wage gap, it is very much part of this conversation because when you look more closely, you can recognize that roles that have been historically gendered, and by that I mean mostly men or women doing one or the other, ones that are gendered towards what we know to be women's work, and I use that in quotes, um, are also ones that have been historically undervalued. So the wage gap is real and it is part of the conversation around pay equity. Pay equity seems like a fairly fundamental term. It's uh, equal pay for equal work. Are there a bunch of variables inside that which make it even possibly more complex or complicated or something? A little bit, yeah. Um, It is kind of a nuanced conversation, and and part of what we wanted to um, kind of achieve with writing this report is to dig into some of those questions and hopefully make information a little bit more accessible than it might be otherwise around pay equity. So um, fundamentally, like you said, pay equity is equal pay for work of equal value within any given employer or in any given industry. Um, And part of why pay equity is important is because, like we spoke about a moment ago, it addresses how work has been historically undervalued or that some work people doing some specific roles have been undervalued where wherever there has been pay equity legislation uh, brought forward and passed inside legislatures what has the result been 10 20 years down the road with decreasing the disparity in the rate of pay and or levels of poverty or number of women in the workforce a variety of things that would be directly measured by equity legislation Yeah, so I will say when we're talking about direct outcomes, it's difficult to um, pinpoint where things are uh, have a causal relationship, so we can't always say Fair. this was a direct cause, but there's a lot of things that are correlated that are important to look at. So that looks like um, the wage gap province to province. So since we have federal pay equity legislation, that means that covers federally regulated workers in Canada, that means that proactive pay equity legislation is a provincial issue. So if we look across provinces and territories where data is available in Canada, there's a really consistent trend where we see that where um, proactive pay equity legislation has been enacted and not just enacted but um, overseen and regulated in a meaningful way, there are lower wage gaps. So that's one indicator that we looked at. Another one is looking at um, average income in um, provinces between men and women where in um, pay equity legislation was enacted because because it's a provincial issue, like I said, it happened in different years. So we're able to look at the year after um, legislation was enacted province to province. And in most places across Canada, we also saw that that year following legislation was the single largest um, growth of average incomes between men and women, which we can say is um, a pretty consistent trend in line with an outcome of the legislation. How would pay equity legislation impact issues such as labor force participation, representation in part-time fields, those types of matters? Yeah, so really important questions. Um, 
we know that pay equity legislation is one measure of many different things that will have an impact on that kind of thing. And ultimately, um, these outcomes vary based on a number of other different things, a number of different um, decision maker, makers um, and, and things that have been implemented by region. It also matters things like um, who's overrepresented in part-time work, who is doing the most minimum and low-wage work, what is the provincial minimum wage. Um, but ultimately, uh, we're not going to know what we're working with in the province until we implement legislation like this and we measure it because we can we can look to other places and see what kind of the magnitude of pay inequity looks like. Um, but without legislation like this here, we don't have really firm numbers to point to. And, and um, that's really concerning. So, you know, when the argument is made, and the government kind of had a couple of strange positions on this one most recently, asked about why no pay equity legislation, even though it's been kicked around for so long. I don't even mm-hmm. know if that's the right phrase. Yeah. But what's the argument against it? Because someone will say, well, there's no such thing. Okay, if there's no such thing, then where's the downside in legislation ensuring that it doesn't happen, public or private sector? We have a female former employee at Nalcor suing the government right now because she says she wasn't paid the same as her male counterparts. So when people argue against pay equity legislation, what are they? actually say yeah good one so we we kind of dug into a couple of those questions and the big questions that we have heard pushback on for decades now one is on cost um and the kind of framework that we have around that argument is that pay equity is a human right in canada and weighing the costs and benefits or whether or not human rights are upheld is really a destructive practice so we just kind of want to make that super clear but because it's something that has been thrown around as you say for such a long time we did take a closer look and Ultimately, what we found is that even looking at this year's provincial budget, our government hemorrhages money where they see fit and for things that they say are of value. So, you know, if we compare what oversight of pay equity um, looks like on a yearly basis in our, pro- or our country's biggest province with the most employers, which is Ontario, that's just under $7 million. So it's not a small figure, but if you look at what our provincial government spent this year on policing services, for example, it's $148 million. And if you look at development and support for oil and gas, that's $180 million. So like I said before, government spends um, where they think it's a value and if, if uh, where it's important. And I, I think when you think about cost, too, um, the seven million that I referenced in Ontario was really just about how to manage oversight to ensure employers have accountability. But when you look at the figures of what government actually has to pay out in adjustments, and by adjustments I mean how to make sure that people are paid equitably and fairly, we're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So that's a big price tag, but ultimately those are all dollars that belong in the pockets of people of the province. So. Um, that kind of price tag is, is shocking and really concerning, um, but it belongs to the people, and that's what we're really interested in. Appreciate your time this morning, Bridget. Thank you for having me, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Bridget Clark. She's the advocacy coordinator at the St. John Status Women Council. I struggle with that word, advocacy. I don't know why. Uh, let's go to line four. Roger, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I just wanted to uh, give you and your listeners another call today to uh, just give you an update as to where the situation regarding the uh, health care records being sent out of the provinces. And uh, just to, um, I guess, just to give some background. Uh, Did you call a while back, sir? You had a family of four? You were trying to pay the for the story. records? Oh, say, girl, go ahead. Hello. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was, I was just asking if you had called in the past. You were trying to retrieve your records from an independent yes, third correct. party, family of four. Correct. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and uh, basically what happened was that my family physician uh, 
decided to leave the province and uh, did not notify uh, all of his patients. He did notify some of his patients, but he did not notify all of his patients, I being one of them, and I've been able to determine now that there's at least 38 others that haven't been notified uh, that he was leaving. And under the Health Care Act, uh, which was explained to me by the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Family physicians in this province who close their practice and don't have a doctor to take over that practice uh, have 90 days uh, to notify all of their patients and to notify the college uh, that they will be leaving and uh, forwarding the uh, the medical records uh, to a third party. And in my case, it's a third party in Ontario who's charging over $200 plus tax to get those records back into the hands of my new family doctor. So I, um, I uh, spoke to you about it earlier. I also wrote the Premier and the uh, Health Minister uh, back in April and for four and a half months, I heard absolutely nothing. Uh, I got totally discouraged with the fact that our elected representatives would not even uh, acknowledge any correspondence on this. But lo and behold, to my uh, surprise, uh, uh, just a few days into the change of health ministers, I received a letter from uh, Tom Osborne, the Minister of Health and Community Services, to, t uh, to tell me that uh, basically uh, family physicians are private businesses and that government cannot regulate or cannot get involved in uh, getting these records back. So the question that I asked Mr. Uh, I, I then uh, phoned his office to see if I could speak to him, and credit to Tom Osborne, he returned my call within uh, within 24 hours, and we had a very respectful conversation. But the question that I asked Minister Osborne was, who is responsible to see that the Health Care Act, when it comes to the closure of practice by a family physician, is adhered to? And he told me, to my surprise, that that responsibility lies with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Yet when I asked the College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, when they were notified, because I wasn't notified by the family physician, they declined to give me any information citing privacy. So the college uh, cites privacy when they're asked when they were notified. So I can only suspect that if I wasn't and 38 others weren't notified, then the college wasn't notified properly by the family physician. And uh, the dispute mechanism now lies with the fact that in order for me to get my family uh, medical records returned, uh, and because in my correspondence to the health minister, I, uh, I said that uh, I fell outside the, uh, the guidelines in that I was never notified that my records were leaving the province. 
and that I didn't think that I should have to pay $200 plus tax plus 11 cents for every page over uh, 100 uh, was the right thing for uh, people on fixed incomes and, and seniors to have to absorb because somebody dropped the ball. Well, a couple of quick so things before... Mr. Osborne is correct in his correspondence with me, the person or the, the, the entity that dropped the ball here is the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So I noted uh, in uh, listening to your program, which I do uh, quite often these days, uh, I noticed you were talking with Minister Osborne last week, and you indicated that... Uh, yeah, you would like for him to give you a call on a number of other critical matters concerning health care. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering today if you could ask Minister Osborne to confirm publicly uh, who is responsible to see that the Health Care Act and the closure of practice by a family physician is adhered to. Because people in Newfoundland and Labrador need to know that if they lose their family doctor and that doctor cannot get a replacement, they also lose their health care records unless, they're, of course, they're willing to pay uh, $200. Understood. Mr. Osborne acknowledged to me, and, um, and again, to my surprise, that he thought $200 plus tax plus 11 cents for an additional page that could be in that medical record was indeed a fair price. So um, we agree to disagree. Okay. So I'm calling you today and, and uh, just giving your, your listeners a heads up that the provincial government, the provincial Department of Health and Community Services, is not going okay. to be a partner in your health care when it comes to getting your health care records back into the hands of a new family physician, which I think is outrageous. Understood. So if, if Roger. Patty and or any of your reporters at VOCM could get Minister Osborne to go on the record to confirm who is responsible to see that the Health Care Act uh, is covered. Understood, and we will uh, do that. We'll have to leave it at that for this morning. We'll have to leave it at that this morning because I'm really late for the news, but I can put that on my list for the minister, no problem. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for the call. Take care, Roger. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Todd Churchill. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Very well, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Yeah, what I want to talk about today, Patty, is, uh, as as you know, and as a lot of people here in Newfoundland and Labrador know, uh, my we, my wife and I have been fighting a human rights complaint from my dev, our, our dev son, Carter, uh, since 2017. And this is now coming to a head at the Board of Inquiry that will convene on the 29th of August and run through the 13th of September. So it's been a long road, and we're finally getting there. And... Um, you know, there's going to be uh, over 30 witnesses. There's going to be 30 witnesses called. All testimony will be under oath. Um, so uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be good to finally bring it to a conclusion, and hopefully we get a good result that will support the education rights of deaf children in our province, 
And one of the things I'd like to say is that if um, anyone would like to participate or attend, or not participate, but attend the hearing, it is open to the public. It's going to be held at the Holiday Inn in Salon A and B, starting on the um, 29th at eight or 9 a.m. And it's also going to be live streamed. So for the first time ever, the Human Rights Commission will be live streaming a Board of Inquiry um, live online. And if anyone would like access to the live stream, they should go and email humanrights at gov.nl.ca. That's humanrights at gov.nl.ca. And you can get the live stream. And everything will be in 100% ASL interpretation as well. Todd, what's the crux of the challenge? In terms of Carter's uh, human rights? Yeah. Yeah, well, like next month uh, when school starts, if you have a parent, if you're a parent of a hearing child, you don't even consider the possibility of having a teacher who can communicate with your child because that's a given, right? It, it sounds even ridiculous to even say that it's a possibility a hearing child could have a, a teacher who doesn't speak English. Um, but if you have uh, a deaf child, that is a fear that you will be assigned a teacher that cannot communicate with your child. We've had it before. I'm sure we'll have it again unless we get a good result at this hearing that will prohibit that, that practice. It's been a long time coming, that much I know. I'm familiar with the story, have been for a number of years, having spoke with you and your wife. And uh, I know it's the, the, I'm not sure what to say, to be honest, uh, some of the glaring shortcomings in the education system for a variety of students, including those who are hard of hearing or deaf. Uh, would you like to offer anything else about the pending inquiry that starts on the 29th of August, Todd? No, no, the big thing is if, uh, you know, people have interest in following up on Carter's story and, and seeing the, the natural conclusion of that story, um, they can go to uh, uh, Deaf Children Matter Facebook page, and there's a post there on exactly how to uh, request access either in person or by the live stream and what emails to contact to do that. So I strongly encourage people to who have interest in the story or um, have some uh, involvement in education who might want to see the outcome of this case to go in and, and check out that, uh, that posting and request access for the live stream because it is going to be a very unique case. It's probably one of the biggest cases of human rights in our province's history. To date, my wife and I have spent over $43,000 in legal fees fighting, and, and that's factoring in several hundred hours of our own time spent doing research, uh, compiling documents, making responses. Even then, we are still at $43,000 in legal expenses, and we're expecting the total to be over $100,000 by the time this is over. Todd, I appreciate the update and the information. I wish you good luck with this. Yeah, thank you, Patty. Take care of yourself. Bye. Bye-bye. So if you're so inclined to follow along with the proceedings of this particular inquiry beginning on August 29th, you can do so via accessing and requesting access to the live stream. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, William says he came into town. What does that mean? We'll find out. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. William, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning to you. Uh, my name is William Clark. I'm from English Iowa West. Sorry, baby. I feel like I can't. I just spent 48 days in the hospital. I'm sorry, William. Where did you say you're from, sir? English Harbor West. English Harbor West. Okay, I didn't catch yes. it the first time. I just spent 48 days here in the hospital and had home nurse surgery. I'm trying to get home. 
and I can't afford to go home. And my medications didn't tell me what I was taking. Were covered under my drug test, but right now, they're not. The wife went to check last night to pick them up, and I managed to afford enough for a week. By the time I get home the weekend, if I get home the weekend, I could be dead by two zero minutes if I don't have my medication. And I've died twice on the table while I was in here. So why why are the drugs no longer covered? It was only covered while you were in the hospital? you got to get a special permit. Some are covered, but I'm taking, yes. But the ones that are prescribed to keep me going now are not covered under medication. Right, but I got, unless I get a special permission. And to get that, it takes approximately 8 to 10 days, working days, for the government to make up their mind if I'm going to get it or if I'm not going to get it. And i got to have special authorization from them in order to get the medication under my drug guide. And so what does it mean, special uh, authorization? Is it whether or not you're required to uh, stay alive, or what does an exemption well, look like? That's what it sounds like to me. You know, if they want to say yes, okay, we'll give it to them for a month or so. That's what it sounds like. They're going to control my life if I live or die. I just fought through hell to try to live. And now they're going to send me back and let me die on my own. So how long does it take for them to make a decision? Do you know? Well, it takes them eight to ten working days to make a decision if I'm going to get it. I was discharged yesterday with the nose that I was automatically covered. But when I went to the drugstore to pick up the drugs last night, it's not covered. And, and you say that you're hoping to get home to English Harbor West by the weekend. Right. So are you staying in town for a specific reason to be close to the hospital well, for a few days or what's the well, issue? Here, I got it yesterday and it's an eight to ten hour drive for, for the go from here. The only way I can get out from here is on a taxi or hire somebody to come in. I don't really can't afford that but like I said we, I got to go one way or another. So I got it. plans made to call a taxi to get the taxi to pick me up and carry me out. But uh, the way things are going, I don't know what to be at. Well, it's certainly a long turnaround to get approval as to whether or not this potentially life-saving drug will be covered by the province. I'm not really familiar with the process, but of course, as someone, your concern not now now is not the process, is whether or not you're actually going to get it, because if you can't right. afford it and pay for it, then you might be, after fighting the good fight for so long, and I think he's at 48 days in the hospital and a procedure to yes. still be facing this issue. I'm not sure what to tell you or where to point you, but I sure, sure hope whatever drugs you need to keep you alive or drugs that you can either afford or get some help or have covered well thing right now things are looking pretty grim and i faced this for a long time i've had five out attacks in two days and then i passed they were on the table twice and then i've had blood transfusions and everything else and i don't know what's going on but i feel good not to go home but i can't go home without the medication well, the medication is one thing that I don't know what I can say or do about it, but what I will throw out there to the listeners, if sometime late this week you are going towards or all the way to English Harbor West and think you can be part of helping this gentleman out, William, uh, who's trying to get home out of it, let's see if anyone responds to that. And uh, Dave Williams wants me to put you on hold. I think he has a question or maybe something for the newsroom. So we'll okay, see if we can sure. help organize, get a ride. And on the drugs... 
at the prescription. Let me know what happens there, William. But I'm going to put you on hold. You'll speak with Dave, okay? Okay, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Boy, oh, boy. Line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Is that me? That's you. Okay. Uh, Patty, listen, I, I, I just heard that one, too. Uh, I didn't know you guys were live. Anyhow, i try to keep it short. Uh, regarding uh, the skipper with the with the uh, uh, having to pay, you know, two hundred plus dollars is outrageous. I'm I'm retired myself, but I, I've been I'm a I'm in the IT business or was. I'm retired. I got uh, you know long story. I, I lost everything anyway. But uh, I, 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 here's here's something everybody in Newfoundland should know, and probably most people in Canada as well. Uh, you see, the simple fact is, all of your medical records, 99% of them right now, are in the cloud. So why he's paying, you know, for a bit of data is beyond me. And I know what I'm talking about because I had, I, I wrote an EMR system. And an EMR system is an electronic medical record system. But I got myself and I'd say... Uh, you know, I was in the business for 30 years, so uh, I pretty much know every doctor or knew every doctor. Most of my clients were retired or passed away now, but, uh, and I, I don't have a doctor either. <laughs> so, but uh, <laughs> believe it or not, and I, I, you know, once upon a time I walk into any hospital, the doctors would recognize me. <laughs> Okay, just a couple of things. So my understanding is that the digital medical records, of course, doctors and pharmacies and whatnot would have access to it, but not individual patients, unlike I'm told in the province of Alberta, where my... Here's the thing. I wrote this just before. I don't don't mean to cut you off, but i just keep it short. My system, your records would be... like, Like, say I'm a hacker. If I wanted to get everybody's records in Newfoundland right now, I could just, I, all I need to do is hack one, one company. My system and, and other companies, there were, I had competition in Newfoundland and right across Canada, but uh, right now it's all in one, it's in one basket. You know what you all saying? You know, when you put all your eggs in one basket? Okay, that's where it is now. And, and all, like, I couldn't compete with these guys. Uh, and COVID, between Snowmageddon and COVID and them, that just flattened me. But anyway, uh, here's here's the thing. I don't know if I can say this, but I, I well I, I'll say this. Look up, or if you want to, if you send me an email, I'll give you my email address. <laughs> it's jeez, uh, I don't know if I should say it. Somebody might guess it. But. Yeah, probably not. I mean, you can send me an email to start the volley. But what's the point of the email exchange? What do you? Well, I, I just want you to look this website up, and that will explain everything <laughs> about the, the like the poor guy. He shouldn't have to pay for this. It's only data. All his records, everything. It's just data, and and he he can he can if he's got a computer and a printer. Uh, he can print all that, that out himself. This pages and pages and stuff. It's just data. <laughs> it's it's not, you know, we, we, you know, it, it's not. 
you know, you don't need paper anymore. <laughs> well, you don't need it, but that's what, unfortunately what we're dealing with here. This entity in Ontario has hard copy of his records. They must have it digitized, and here's why I say that, is because they also have an 11 cent per page charge for pages over 100. So yeah, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. It is outrageous, and it's unnecessary. So, you know, the college can indeed put a process in place where a retiring or a physician who's leaving their family clinic owes the, all of their patients to a man, to a woman, 14 days heads up so they can come collect the records for free, or even smarter, I think, is considering the fact that they're sending direct billing to MCP, so all of that engagement is already taking place. They could easily find a clerical home for your data, whether it be paper or on a, on a hard drive or on a jump stick. They can absolutely find a home for that at MCP so that we can go through even if the clerical fee became 20 bucks to get everything you needed it's certainly a lot better than struggling with a third party company in Ontario and paying for a family of four for the data that is yours it's not the doctors it's not the provinces it's yours it's your medical history so there's ways we can do better no question and these, these guys are not in Ontario these are international this is a well this company is Ontario this company's in Ontario I've seen the bill okay well yeah. This is well. This, but anyway, uh, no. Uh, the, the, the software, or you know, the the the, the, the stuff I wrote, and another company said it. Back, uh, uh, and I, I always thought it was a bad idea. Like, I I think what the, the, they they should have kept it. Uh, it. Every clinic had had the data. So if your your family doctor, if you needed your records, and you've been going to see that person for. 30 years and he retires or she retires and someone takes their place that data is there okay it's there now and 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 uh, you know if somebody stole a computer like my data they're, they're not getting at your data not with my software not with any any company that, that uh, i was in competition with there's no way the average joe was going to be able to get at that data they just wouldn't be able to you know and and uh, let alone probably not even get get into the computer, let alone get the data. But uh, that's the way it used to be, and that's the way it should be. Uh, you know, but uh, uh, you know that's that's uh, this this company like these these guys are are worldwide. They started buying up stuff years ago, and they finally got the Newfoundland. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's you know I can give you the name. I don't know if I can say the company's name on phone or not you know well um, i mean you're not saying that they did anything wrong you're not bashing me you just no, simply no, give me no, information no. okay okay so just give me the company name i'll have a look after the show when i get a chance okay look at look just look up telus.com okay telus t-e-l yeah the same yeah the telecom <laughs> company telus yeah yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> anyway okay you know. I will but where am I going to find information about medical records on telus.com yeah they put me out of business with five, five of my employees and, but anyway whatever can't compete with them boy <laughs> nobody can seemingly anyway. I appreciate the time thanks for this now, here's the other thing quickly the other guy that just, just got off you you just put him you put him on hold put him on to somebody else uh, my hair goes out to him my wife um, this very quickly my wife uh, had five heart attacks a stroke uh dialysis twice um she had uh tracheotomy she was uh, uh i i know the, you know and i know where he is 
she she didn't have a drug card either. I had to pay for those drugs. And I tell you, blood thinners alone, buddy, eight hundred dollars for one bottle of pills, and they're not going to last. You got to have them, or you will die. <laughs> Period. And I'm not a doctor. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to see if we eight hundred dollars. If you got that. You know, that, that's just one. And I know this guy, if he had open-heart surgery, you know, I pity him. If I had money, I don't, I'm broke. But if, uh, if I had the money, I'd, uh, yeah, I'd send it to him. We're going to see what kind of help we can get him. I'm off to the news, but I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, Patty. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for said newscast. When we come back, whatever's on your mind, let's talk about it. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Kevin, you're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Okay, how you doing? Oh, not too bad, sir. Uh, wouldn't you agree that our province is in a bad uh, fiscal situation, financial? Uh, yeah. Why would it be then that our Minister of Finance has nothing better to do with her time than go around talking about sugary drinks? I mean, aren't we all adults? We don't need her to tell us what's good and what's bad for us. Yet, if she's going to do that, get rid of cigarettes and booze, you know. What do you mean, get rid of stuff? I mean, because well, uh, no, no, prohibition no, doesn't work. She's, her thing and, and the sugary drinks is, is that it causes diabetes and all that. Sure, I mean, this stuff's been on the go for years, and I mean, we don't, people don't need her to be telling them what to be at and what to drink and what not to drink. But having said that, sir, how come she didn't come out in her infinite wisdom and ban chewing gum, candy, which is pure sugar? But nobody's banning anything. No, but how come she's not taxing them, Patty? That's that's what I meant to say. I'm sorry. But how come she's not taxing candy extra, chewing gum extra, the flakies, and all them buns that are full of sugar, which is probably worse than the pop, but how come she's not looking at that? If you're going to go for one and say it's the sugar, you can't pick and choose. you got to go for it all. I, I suppose, but... <laughs> You know, but where does any of that end? That's the legitimate conversation. Is So do we go from sugary drinks to cereals, for instance? Because a lot of children will love to eat the very heavily sugar content cereal. So exactly. is that next? Well, is it sugar. other confectionery products? I mean, who knows where we're going? And whether or not a tax really does... Uh, reposition people's behaviors when they go to the shop. Like, I don't know. The government themselves have said the quiet part out loud. They think this is going to raise millions of dollars. So that kind of admits that not everybody is going to change what they like and they buy because of a 20 cent per liter tax. So where to? I don't know. Exactly. It's another tax grab. But I mean, if you're coming out and saying because it's sugar in the sugary drinks and if you get zero sugar in it, well, boy, you can pick and choose. If it's sugar, well, everything that has sugar in it should be taxed. That's, that's in these novelty food items okay you know it only makes sense suckers and all that come up halloween now buddy look at the candy yeah <laughs> anyway patty thank you so very much for your time anytime buddy. all the best bye bye i mean it's always going to be the way when we talk about the go-to for promoting encouraging people's decisions if it all comes down to tax well you know, it's a pretty heavy hammer, but in a lots of areas where we think something is less than healthy for us, a sin tax has been applied with some success. 
cigarettes. The amount of the number of Canadians smoking is down. Is it all because of the heavy taxation on a cigarette or a package of? I don't know, maybe. Maybe some people made a decision based on that. But it didn't just stop with that. It went through labeling and the nondescript taking all the colors away from the packaging. No longer allowed to have cigarette companies, for instance, sponsoring the big events like the DeMaurier Women's Golf Open, right? And or liquor companies being able to sponsor some of the things that they have in the past as well, but namely cigarettes. Then they hid them behind a wall in the store. So there was a variety of things. And then there was all kinds of educational programs about the risks of smoking. They did not just come with a one-size-fits-all. Let's just apply a tax and all of a sudden we have cured our ills. It didn't happen like that. There was widespread uh, focused plan, play, approach to seeing the number of people smoking decrease. Same thing happens with alcohol. Have people changed their buying habits? The purchasing of alcohol is way up in this province and the taxes are huge and the price tag is enormous. So it's not just about applying the tax necessarily, is it? Let's go to line number six. Bonnie, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. I want I wanted to clarify the special authorization for drugs. Okay. As, as a person who just went through it with my husband, he needed a particular drug. And my, my drug card provider, um, I had to get a special authorization. So my doctor had to fill out that form. A, doc, a doctor has to fill out that form. You have to download it from their from their site and uh, print it off and bring it to your doctor he has to fill it out and send it in to your provider and then they decide if they're going to cover the drug or not and in the meantime i paid for the drug which was 235 dollars for one month but my doctor backdated it to the date that my husband needed it and the drug provider did pay for that they did pay for that when the special authorization came through. Okay. So that's how it works. I assume it's simply a process, but of course, when someone has had the struggles that William has in particular, then knowing that eight or nine business days to get a final decision on whether or not your life-saving drug is going to be covered or not, it just adds to the worry. I suppose when you have someone, I was going to say captive, if you have someone in the hospital and the doctors understand what prescriptions are going to go out the door upon discharge, maybe then while they're already in care, we can begin the process so it's not, you know, sitting in a, a, a hotel room or a motel or a buddy's place in St. John's before you go back to English Harbor West, not knowing whether or not you're going to be able to bring the drugs you need with you. Maybe we can yeah. just, you know, do it a little earlier in the game so that we reduce this level of stress and weight. I realize that, but you know what? Doctors don't know which drugs are covered and which are not. It's strictly up to the provider. So the doctor is writing the prescription not knowing if it's covered or if it's not, or even if you have insurance. The doctor is just writing the prescription because you need it. Yes, of course. And they, but. And they, don't, they don't know that. So that's where that's coming from. But I just wanted to uh, provide you with the information of how a special authorization works. And I appreciate the information, buddy. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, in the meantime, the man can ask the druggist for like two weeks supply and pay for it. And then once the authorization comes in, he will be reimbursed is what I'm saying. You're probably right there. And we think we've got a couple of things in action to try to help poor William out a little bit. So so. we'll stay on top of it. 
I hope so. Thank you very much, Barry. Thanks, Bonnie. All the best. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Final break of the day of the show. Uh, when we come back, Ed's in the queue to talk about smokes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Ed, you're on the air. Yes, Paddy, uh, how are you today? Okay, I'm doing okay, Ed. How are you doing? Listen, uh, about cigarettes there, you said cigarettes were down in Newfoundland. Uh, say what? You said cigarettes were down in Newfoundland. No, I didn't. I said uh, smoking numbers across the country are down. So uh, the nationwide number is down. I'm not 100% sure what it is in Newfoundland, but the last I remember, uh, it was also down. Yeah, but you know it's more counterband on the go now and never right across Canada? I suppose. What do you mean? How am I supposed to factor that in? Don't just folks more smoking. Yeah, but how am I supposed to factor in how many people are buying cigarettes from the reserves into any numbers no, that we can document? Don't know. Well, I'm not going to give you that. But I'm telling you, from the reserves, reserves are making big money. Oh, yeah, I know that for sure. Yeah. And then cigarettes just through the roof, and people are just not buying them. They're going to buy contraband. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. They still sell plenty of cigarettes at uh, the legitimized taxed outlets, but for sure, like someone, interesting that you say that because someone sent me an email. It was either, I guess it was last week, saying that they picked up a package. They were just going to throw it in the garbage. It was an empty package, and it said something very specifically about not for retail sale, only tax for the reservation, whatever the phrase was. So that absolutely was bought out of someone's house or out of the back of the van. Yeah. That's it. Yep, that's right. That's the name of the game. I suppose. It's like Semper Rome. With the liquor, yeah. There's more Semper Rome in the Newfoundland than you in Shakespeare's No, I didn't tell you that right off home. Uh, yeah, we, we know people are running rum from Saint-Pierre-Miquelon. It's absolutely true. How much or how prevalent or common are the contraband smokes? I don't know, but guaranteed they're out there 100%. Even when I was a kid, you could have gone behind the trades college and Buddy had the brown van and he was selling smokes. We all knew it. When I worked in Bullham, there was more coming to uh, Bellevue from Saint-Pierre. Boatloads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's always been the way. I never stopped with anyway. <laughs> Seldom. That's right. <laughs> Anything else you want to say, Ed? That's no, That's it. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I can't factor in or take a guesstimate about just how much smuggled rum or smuggled cigarettes are being sold and smoked and by how many people I don't know I mean we all know that it's actually happening but to what extent it's just about anybody's guess uh, let's go to line number one Chris you're on the air hi Chris hello buddy hello 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 I'm doing great how you doing not too bad Teddy I've been hearing a few of your callers calling into the show now, Prime Minister Trudeau, he's supposed to be on the West Coast with the German Chancellor. Okay, that's great. Good news. But I think it's time that some of our 40 politicians from the House of Assembly went to the West Coast and let the Prime Minister know what's going on here. If he don't know, he's deaf. And where's the plan for Newfoundland and Labradorians for the future? Because Newfoundland and Labradorians out there today... That could be any one of us, from the poorest to the richest person on this island. And there's not enough of ye calling out 
to help the needy. So all I'm saying to you today is to get to the West Coast. And if you got transportation there for me, I'll go. And I'll get up on the podium. And I'll let the Prime Minister know a few things about history. Now, Paddy, I'm not, I'm not no artist or no perfect person. But it cuts me to the bone, Paddy, when I hear these stories. I really do. And if I had the money today, look, I'd drive that man out to uh, the, wherever he's from out there in the West. Yeah, uh, we're getting him some help. The English Harbour West. Yeah, okay, we're getting him some yeah. help. But what's the point of your saying about 40 members of the House of Assembly doing what with the Prime Minister? I didn't catch that part. Well, go, go out there and uh, ask him what's his plan for Newfoundland and Labrador. Sure. Are he going to do anything with the roads, Paddy? What? Are they going to do anything with health care? But neither yeah. of those are federal issues. They're both provincial issues. So shouldn't we be asking our 40 members about their plans? Well, maybe we should be asking our 40 members, Paddy. But the revenue comes from the federal government. We all know Newfoundland got no money, buddy. And the reason why they're coming up with sugar tax is for revenue. It's not for the good of the people, because if it was, why wouldn't they be taxing the liquor board? How much sugar is in those drinks that they've been serving for the last 20 years? It's ridiculous, Paddy, how they put stuff into the system. They put, like, chocolate bars in liquor. Our, our government allowed it to happen. I mean, what does that do to, to people if they don't get them highly addicted to the, to the alcohol? I mean, you've seen it in the liquor store, Paddy, when you were a young man. You've sort of, you never seen the likes what's in the liquor stores today. Right? So, I mean, yeah. you know, we have, if we don't ask and don't put pressure on the federal government for revenue, we're not going anywhere. But in the world That's of healthcare, anyway. all right, in the world of healthcare, every province is asking for the exact, the exact same thing, more. Well, well, well you know, we, we have to do something. We can't have these people coming out of hospital not having any medication, like, to go in their systems to help them prolong their life. You know? I mean, like, something has to be done. I mean, uh, I, I don't know all the answers, but I'm always suggesting that, you know, we get out to the West Coast and, okay, if they're going to reap our resources, you know, how about some revenue? How much money had the oil companies uh, uh, reaped over the last 20 years? You know, and how much have they given back? You know, I mean, there has to be an answer here somewhere, right? I mean, like, we have to turn the miners into, into a plus sooner or later, brother. Yeah, but some of those things, they don't really belong on the Prime Minister's table. There are lots of questions to be asked of politicians of all stripes and all levels. But some of the things you're focusing on are 100% provincial issues. Like, we negotiate what an oil company project looks like with the royalties okay. and taxation and subsidies and support. And I mean, that's stuff that's in our purview. The federal government's role in that is approvals on environmental assessments and all those types of things. But it's really incumbent on our elected officials to do things like road work, to do things like uh, managing the healthcare system. I mean, yes, it comes with a federal healthcare transfer dollar. Every province is looking for more. It's usually like the last bilateral deal was all about mental health and long-term care, not about hiring doctors, because every province is competing for the same doctor. Well, they, I, I do believe we're not getting enough money from the oil companies. That's for one thing. Well, now, we okay. have minerals here. I don't think we're getting enough money from the minerals either. Right, okay. and they took away our fishery. The federal government were not allowed to fish. We're not allowed to go out and make a dollar that way. So, like, what are we going to do? 
Like, are we going to keep going status quo for the next five, ten years and just watch people wither away and start it and die? Are we going to start speaking out and look for something else? That's, I, I think there's, there's lots of speaking out and certainly lots of speaking out on the issues on this show. That much I know because I'm on the show. Uh, I agree with you. I, I appreciate the time. You've had the last word this morning, Chris. Thanks for the call. All the best, Patty. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we're going to play a little bit of The King on the Way Out. Okay, yeah, it was today, August 16th, 1977, that Ginger Alden found Elvis Aaron Presley unresponsive on the floor of his bathroom at Graceland. Here's a little Elvis on the way out, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.